Hello and welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the story podcast from the People's Friend in association with the Oddfellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team delve into our archives to find a story to read and then sit down for a wee chat about it. So, make yourself a cuppa, pull up a chair and come join us. This episode, we're reading A Healing Touch by Una Murray. First published on the 13th of January, 1940. Reading the story is Friend Sobeda to Kirsty. Over to Kirsty. Morning prayers were just over. But instead of dismissing the children assembled in the hall of the Sunnyfield Orphanage, Matron kept them a minute or two longer. Her eyes twinkled happily through her spectacles in a way that meant she had something nice to say. If you are very good, children, she started, you are going to have a treat next week. But before I tell you what it is, I want to tell you a little story. Between forty and fifty pairs of eyes were fixed on her intently. Between forty and fifty children wished she would leave out the story and come to the part about the treat. Matron's stories generally had a moral in them. They showed that naughty little girls and boys were never really happy, and that it was always best to be good. Quite true, perhaps, but not the kind of story they really enjoyed. There was little restlessness when Matron told her story. If they fidgeted, she might send them to the classrooms without saying a word about the treat. Several years ago, she began, there was a little boy here named Jimmy Kane. He had no parents and no relatives near enough to come and see him. Jimmy was a good boy. Uh, a slight smile touched her lips for a second. Uh, generally. He was always very interested in machinery, so when he grew older, he went to engineering classes and was later apprenticed to a large firm. Now, children, Jimmy Kane is quite grown up. He has worked so well that he is a very, very big businessman. He is staying near here now for a holiday and came to see me the other day. Matron paused and beamed on them all. A feeling of greater interest ran through the children. They were coming to the treat now. They felt somehow it was associated with this Jimmy Kane. They were quite right. Matron went on to explain that he wished all the children to be taken by motor coach to the seaside for a day. They were to have a picnic lunch on the sands, tea in a large hall there. There would be ices, buckets and spades provided for all. Mr Kane would pay all expenses. Very early one day the following week, little people who should have been asleep were awake. Was it going to be fine? Those who slept near the window stood on their pillows and gave minute-to-minute weather reports. There's an awful big cloud coming up. It's moving away nice and quick, though. Oh, it's ever so misty. Matron says that means hot weather. Only one little boy didn't care what the weather was like. He was in a small room by himself, his head buried in his pillow. One little boy had developed a nasty cold and a temperature. One little boy couldn't go. Jim Kane leaned out of the window and looked up at a cloudless sky. Like to go for a drive, darling? He asked the girl, curled up on the chair. It seems a pity to waste time indoors when our holiday is nearly over. Maureen Kane put down her book and came over to her husband's side. There was a teasing smile in her eyes as she said, You are longing to go to Seahaven to see the orphanage children playing there, aren't you? I would like to peek at them, he admitted. I bet they are enjoying themselves. 
When I was a kid, I used to wish desperately that some magician would whisk us all to the seaside for a whole day. That is why I asked Matron to allow me to give this little treat. Maureen kissed him lightly on the cheek. You have some nice ideas, Jimmy. I'll get my hat. She slipped out of the room, but not before Jim had seen that the smile had faded from her face, and her shoulders had drooped when she thought she was unobserved. He sighed. I ought not to have suggested it, I suppose, he thought. In his blundering, manlike way, he had thought that a trip like this might brighten her spirits, that seeing a crowd of children enjoying themselves might lighten the sadness in her eyes, a sadness caused through the death, a year ago, of their three-year-old son, Derek. The knowledge that she would never bear another child made her grief so much greater. Jim had tried to comfort her all these months, had been as patient and loving as he could. Once he had suggested, rather timidly, that they should adopt a child, but she had only snapped at an angry, no! Later, she had said more quietly, never ask me to let another child toddle around our home and use Derek's wooden horse and toys. I couldn't bear it, Jim. When they reached Sea Haven, and Matron told the children that this was none other than the Mr. Kane who had made their outing possible, the car was surrounded by a merry crowd of youngsters. At the request of several boys, Jim took off his shoes and socks and, rolling up his trousers, waded into the shallow pools with them, looking for shrimps. For us to take home to Jerry who couldn't come, one boy explained. Once or twice he glanced back at the beach. Maureen was sitting in a deck chair talking a little to Matron and her assistants, but he noticed that she kept her eyes averted from the busy band of castle builders at their feet. Surely all her passionate love for children had not died when Derek was taken from them? If so, the future did indeed look bleak. He had worked hard to reach his present position. They had money enough and to spare. He would have liked to take any one of these sturdy, mischievous boys into his home and give him the boyhood he himself had missed. But Maureen must wish it too. They must be together over a big undertaking like that. A little later when they drove off, he knew that, apart from his very enjoyable hour with the children, the trip had been a failure. Maureen had not warmed to one of the happy youngsters. He went back by a different route and slowed down as they passed a large grey building. This is the orphanage, Maureen. Matron told me I could look over it now if I wished. I hadn't the time the other day when I called here. Like to come? She shook her head. No, I'll stay here. I'm rather tired. Then, seeing the look of disappointment in his eyes, she added quickly, No, I'll come. A bright-looking girl opened the door to them, and when Jim explained their errand, led them into a cool-looking, tiled hall. Don't bother to come with us. We'll just wander around. I know my way. He smiled. He was like a child again as, holding his wife's arm, he piloted her through the dining and playrooms. That's the corner where I had to stand when in disgrace. I remember once I took Matron's clock to pieces, he chuckled. Upstairs, he was able to show Maureen the very bed on which he had slept. He was delighted also to find in the adjoining bathroom that some of the amateur plastering he had done years ago still held. As they were about to go downstairs again, they met the maid carrying a tray. One of the children couldn't go today as he had a cold. Poor little Jeremy Blake. He always seems to catch everything that's going. Missed the Christmas party too, last year. Jim opened the door for her and they caught sight of a small boy wrapped in blankets sitting in a chair by the window. Hello, old chap, Jim exclaimed, strolling into the room. Bad luck having to stay behind today. Maureen stood in the doorway. 
The child looked so forlorn, so thin and pale, that part of her longed to follow Jim in and wipe the tear marks from the little face, to stroke that tousled mop of red-gold hair. Another part of her wanted to hurry away, to brush from her memory the picture of Jim bending over the child. At the sight of the uninteresting thick bread and butter the maid was handing the child, Maureen went in and touched Jim's arm, saying impulsively, Why not run to the shops and get something more appetising for the child? You have some nice ideas, he smiled, repeating the words she had used when speaking to him earlier in the day. Then, turning to Jeremy, he said, Could we have tea with you? I'll run along to the village to get some more food because we are terribly hungry people. Our appetites are enormous. The maid smilingly promised to make more tea and bring up extra cups. Jim returned, laden with fruit and cream buns and the most tempting cakes he could purchase. It was Maureen who tied a feeder around the child's neck and wiped jammy fingers and face when Jeremy declared he couldn't manage another chocolate biscuit. You'll probably be sick tomorrow and Matron will be cross with me, Jim told him, but it was worth it, wasn't it? Jeremy's smile conveyed that it was worth it. It was Maureen who seemed to remember most of the games that could be played with a little boy who wasn't very well. At six o'clock, when the maid came to put Jeremy back to bed, he said shyly, Won't you undress me, please? I like your hands. Sally's are red and hard. The colour flew into Maureen's cheeks. She evidently did not want to put him to bed. Probably the thought of taking a small boy in her arms again hurt too much. Jim saw her bite her lip. He was surprised when she said in a low voice to the maid, All right, I'll see him to bed. Jim sauntered into the corridor. Through the half-open door, he could see that her fingers trembled as she fumbled with tiny braces. They were blue ones, the same kind as Derek had worn. Jim chuckled when he heard the child say gravely, You did that much better than Sally does. I wish you'd come to live here. Maureen's laugh came naturally. But what would Mr. Kane do? You know he wants a lot of looking after, too. A lot of whispering seemed to take place then, and when Jim strolled back, Maureen was tucking the blankets under the mattress. You won't forget your promise? Jeremy asked anxiously as they said goodnight to him. I won't forget, she promised. Walking down the stairs, Jim said, Dear little chap, but one of the plainest kids I've seen. What were you promising him? Only that I'd go in and see him again before we return home. She hesitated a moment, then said, Jim, I... He pressed her arm encouragingly. What is it, Maureen? He looks so delicate, she said dreamily, as if he needed a lot of attention, a lot of loving. Do you think Matron would let him come to us for a holiday? The change of air might do him a world of good, and there are toys enough to amuse him. Jim stopped abruptly. I want you to be quite sure about this, Maureen. Could you bear to see another child at home? She nodded, and when she turned, he knew by the warm light in her eyes that recovery from the blow fate had dealt them was beginning. He had hoped that a crowd of romping, laughing children would break the coldness that had numbed her heart all these months, but it was a poor, sick child who would help her back to happiness. Jeremy's holiday would stretch into months, years. This homely-looking child, with his freckles and red hair, possessed, for Maureen, the healing touch. Jim was whistling a gay little tune as he helped his wife into the car. Her eyes were fixed on a window in the upper story of the orphanage, and a tender smile was playing around her mouth.
Reading Between the Lines is proud to be sponsored by Friendship Society, The Oddfellows. If you've ever wondered what being a member of The Oddfellows means, we're delighted to be able to share some first-hand answers. I'm Diane from Ipswich. I've only just joined Oddfellows last week, but already I've found myself getting involved with dancing, interesting talks, various other things, meals out. Um, I'm hoping that it's going to go from strength to strength and it is now getting me out of the house. So that's how I found that Oddfellows is helping me. My name is Jane and I live in Alton. The Oddfellows recently helped my granddaughter and her family with a much needed recuperative break at the seaside following nasty burns to my granddaughter's legs, which involved frequent trips to a specialist burns unit. She was so brave. And she was delighted that her junior membership entitled her to an Oddfellows Convalescence Grant. If you've recently retired and need inspiration to find a new routine, take a look at what your local Oddfellows friendship group has to offer. The Oddfellows want to help you make the most out of your retirement with social events, group holidays, volunteering opportunities and wellbeing support. To find out more about their retirement support, give them a call today on 0800 028 1810 or visit oddfellows.co.uk. It's time to start a new chapter of your life. Now, let's get back to the story. Let me top up my coffee, grab some of my friends and we'll have that little chat about it. That was Healing Touch, a lovely reading from Kirsty, who sadly isn't joining us today, but we do have Marion from the Features team. Hello, Marion. Hello. And another podcast debut this episode, we have Jackie from our production team. Welcome, Jackie. Hello. <laughs> Welcome. And podcast veteran Barry from the DC Thompson Archives. Hello, Barry. Hello. That was a very deep, <laughs> dramatic. Was it? It's that. It's I'll do it again then. <laughs> it's fine. Hi. <laughs> I go with her. Sup. Sup. Like it much better. Right. I think we might be in for an interesting episode um, because this is one I picked out myself in the archives and I quite liked it when I picked it out, but that's not the impression that I'm getting from everyone else that I've spoke to about this. Um, we can't ask Kirsty how she found reading it. Um, but she did tell me that she wasn't a fan. So I'll start with Marion. Immediate impressions of a healing touch? Oh, Jackie. <laughs> um, if I use the word mawkish, would that come on too strong for anybody else? It's um, a bit much. I'm going to have to ask the definition of that word. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a weeny bit sentimental for my taste. Oh! Okay, so maybe that's what I quite liked about it then. Um, that was quite strongly worded. That was real, real emotion coming out of there, Marion. <laughs> I know. Well, I nearly had to read this one. Oh, so right. I dodged a bullet. <laughs> <laughs> so I had actually read it before Kirsty, poor girl, had to do the doings, and I was kind of dreading it because I thought I'm not going to be able to do this justice. <laughs> You're going to well up. Is that what you're saying? It was too much for you. Uh, that really wasn't what I meant. No. <laughs> what about you, Barry? What was your immediate impressions reading it through? You know what? It's got a charm. 
I mean, I think, you know, yes. if a rich couple are going to an orphanage and a people's friend's story from that era, they are not coming away empty-handed. <laughs> I think we can just agree on this and just like, you know, just understand that that's part of the process. It's how they get there Yeah, is, is really about it. Um, so I guess it, it was quite predictable in that way. I, I would say so, yeah. I mean, I think it was no, you know, it was pretty much telegraphed. But I think it got there in quite a nice way. And bear in mind, this is at a time when I guess there were a lot of orphans. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is from January 1940, possibly written before the war started. But, you know, I guess this is something that was on people's minds. So probably very fitting then. Yeah, I was going to mention later, but that fits in quite nicely there. It's just an interesting little tidbit is that on the page, like the original page just over, I think I've, I've scanned this wrong, so I can't see what the title is. But is that the... They used to have like a regular editor's diary type feature. Yeah. And there's a bit that's a thank you to people's friend readers for knitting socks and stuff that went out to military hospitals and things like that. So it was quite nice having those two next. It just reminded you actually what time this is that we're reading this story. Um, and I think people's friend did a really good job of tackling those heavy topics, but in that kind of light touch way, because it is quite a... There's a, there's a really sad thread at the heart of it that this woman, like their child died and they, and they can't have children. Um, but it's not too, you know, it's, it's a hopeful story. It's I a wishful, wish fulfillment story, isn't it? For orphans in some way, you know, this is kind of, that's what it says. A <laughs> Which rich you couple. get a lot of that, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It doesn't make it bad, but yeah, it is a bit sentimental. You're so generous, Barry. And you've made me feel really bad now. I really I hope so. so. I hope so. (laughs) What did you think, Jack? Is it too soppy too or did you quite Absolutely not too soppy. I I'm definitely on Barry's side with his (laughs) thoughts on it. Um I thought it was it was perfectly lovely. All the way through it reminded me of uh, a people's friend story today. Um barring some language like the evolution of language and things. Um but I, I really liked it, and, and I liked the ending as well because it kind of just hinted at what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, it didn't actually say, because it, although at the ending it sounded like it was going into the future, but he, that was really just him thinking of what might happen. Um, and I liked that it was kind of left up to us to kind of... That's a really good point, actually. It wasn't like this, and then he was adopted, and it was happily ever after. It was just yeah. kind of a soft touch to let you, mm-hmm. you know, imagine... Yeah, it was just him looking forward to saying that he kind of thought that his holiday was stretching the months and years. Yeah. Oh. I'll I'll give it that. It didn't go straight for the adoption. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or those very neat little tidy Mm -hmm. wrap-ups that we usually get at the end of these older people's friends' stories. Mm -hmm. I found it so heartwarming, and I'm a total sucker for a happy ending. Me like, too, actually. It doesn't matter like how interesting the plot. I hate any plots of stories that that kind of just don't round it off nicely. I like it when it's rounded off nicely. I think, yeah, I think that's maybe... I'm totally the same. I love a happy ending. So I think all these people's <laughs> friend stories, even if they're horrible, if it has like a nice happy ending, I'm like, oh, that was great. And everyone was like, that was terrible. <laughs> Um, I'm just sitting across watching Marion thawing slightly now. Which is <laughs> like, okay, yeah, I think it's really in. nice that you guys like it. It's not for me. Yeah, no, no that's, you that's know, totally not everybody fair. has the same taste. It struck me like going to Battersea Dogs Home to pick a puppy. 
Well, that's what it was, wasn't it? I mean, that was the whole idea. They went there. Oh, and he went there browsing. I will. Effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not really. He, he basically just, well, no, he did really. He, he, he had to look at the ones on the beach and thought, nah, they're a bit yeah. rowdy. We want something a bit quieter. I think there, there is actually a line somewhere, which I even underlined. I think I know what this is going to be, but I'll let um, you find it. it was, <laughs> yeah. Um, he says, a little later when they drew drove off, he knew that apart from his very enjoyable hour with the children, the trip had been a failure. Maureen had not warmed to one of the happy youngsters. This is malice aforethought. <laughs> Did you not get the impression that he was just wanting her to thaw to children in general because she was so kind of against it before then? Maybe just open her to the possibility that in the future she might want to adopt. I think... You could read it like that. Mm -hmm. It wasn't how it came across to me. To be fair, it doesn't. It, it does look like he's gone there with an agenda. But a nice agenda. He, he has nice thoughts. Sweet. They both have it, nice it thoughts. It comes as from they, a nice place. Yeah, yeah. They both have nice thoughts, as they say repeatedly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really good point, though. Because I at first, I kind of thought of saying that he was just wanting her to kind of see potential. But actually, that line is very much like... Oh, she didn't pick one. <laughs> um, and there's another line that I'd underlined, um, or I hope I've underlined, where he's basically... No, I haven't underlined it. But he's, he basically calls Jeremy, the kid that she kind of wants to, plain. And it's almost like you get the impression he's like, oh, she's gone for that one. I, would, I wouldn't have minded one of these more robust laughing lads from the... <laughs> The beach. I went yeah, for there a was lot a pedigree there. and I got, <laughs> <laughs> got a greyhound or a, a whippet. Or... And that's something Kirsty had mentioned as well after reading it. She was like, she just took issue with the whole, the way he was almost shopping for yeah. a, um, a child, which I guess is is a good point. Yeah, I think Kirsty and I are probably of one mind. <laughs> it's a good job we're not both on the panel, isn't it? I know, it would have been, it would have been a, an attack. <laughs> it's nice that they went for the underdog. I mean, would, uh, oh, that's a really unfortunate choice of phrase <laughs> in this context. <laughs> but, so <laughs> <laughs> poor kids. <laughs> fed him treats. <laughs> oh, that poor child. He must have been stuffed and him not feeling well. I know. He couldn't even fetch. What a shame. <laughs> oh, no. Um, I mean, yeah. I, I, I like what Jack was saying. You know, this sounds like something that the people's friend would do, but... Before this, this is not how the People's Friend have treated orphans. Oh, really? Uh, no. I, I love one of my favourite stories that appeared in the People's Friend around the 1880s. was called Billy's Bite. It was a William C. Honeyman. Now, this is the, uh, the detective stories uh, in which you get quite a graphic description of orphan children being beaten to death. Oh, my Literally goodness. kicked to oh, death. Oh, my word. Yeah, it's brutal. Absolutely brutal. I, I still, I love the fact that it made its way into the magazine. I love the fact that it's still in print and it's still got the power to shock. It's quite wow. remarkable. So in that context, this is a lovely story. I, mean, <laughs> I can see where you're coming from yeah. now. Totally. It's something that I picked up on other episodes of the difference you get in the different decades of these stories because I looked across 1920s, 30s and 40s. Um, and I, the reason I went for this one is because it wasn't that kind of typical cutesy romance that you get a lot of in the earlier ones like from the illustration which I will share but just to describe it to you it's um 
what's Maureen and the wee kid Jeremy and she's it's the scene where she's doing his pajamas up and getting him ready for bed so you, immediately you could tell it was like something different and I was interested that way but Jackie yeah. in that same illustration if you look at the shadow on the wall it looks like she's choking him <laughs> that is very true it's quite a menacing shadow it's very sad. Oh it's very noir because it's looks like it's <laughs> lit from I below thought. it's quite it's quite threatening and do you know what it's the gloves on the floor as well <laughs> He's she's she's going to leave fingerprints. An entirely new context. That's terrible. But yeah, it's quite it's quite a simple story. It was one of the shorter ones of this season because um, it's got quite a lot of talking and and dialogue and that. Do you do you prefer the sort of directness of it, or do you think it needed a bit more to it? I enjoyed some of the the dialogue, and not not necessarily between the the, the husband and wife. There was a really nice bit near the beginning where the kids are getting excited for this treat, they're going out and they're doing the up to minute-to-minute the minute weather reports. Yeah. And that's really lovely. It's that just a nice, quite, quite punchy. It was very good. It's very believable. It. Very yeah, believable very. Um, dialogue. It was quite a nice sentence around there as well where they're waiting for Matron to tell them about the treat and it's like, get to the good bit. Yeah, it was like, and, and they could tell that she was getting to the good bit and what the treat was going to be. There was, that was the only bit I actually took issue with. Was it? Well, yeah, right at the start, the third paragraph in, um, there were between 40 and 50 pairs of eyes. Can you be a bit more precise? I mean, <laughs> these children are in your care. Is it 40 or 50? <laughs> you tell me, you know. I mean, you're allowed to look after how many children? <laughs> Goodness me. I mean, I just think that's a weird thing for a, a writer to do. If you're in charge of the, the narrative, you just make you can decide a number. Yeah. See, 47 eyes. That'd be weird. <laughs> <laughs> and then that infer that one of them's got up an eye patch. Make it even I more mean, sorry. Yeah. As we were saying, the time that this is set, they couldn't keep track of all the orphans. <laughs> People keep coming in on holiday and just helping themselves. Well, there you go. Where's the DBS checks? <laughs> sorry, me and Jack are absolutely dying. <laughs> But, but you think about it, he just walked in there. He was had an open invite. He said, Don't worry about us, we'll just go in, have a wander around. Not leaving here empty handed, grab on. We're out, go, go. They won't, they won't notice, they're not keeping a head down. <laughs> 40 or 50 sets of eyes. You decide. I'll never notice one missing. <laughs> See how long it takes. Well, <laughs> on that note, um, let's talk about the characters Jim and Maureen um what do we think of them I thought I found it quite refreshing and that it seemed like a very equal couple to me like Jim wasn't just making that decision of we're going to adopt a child he said that she needed to be part of this decision which feels like the bare minimum but not necessarily at the time um so yeah what do we think of of Jim and Maureen Jackie, I'll go to you first, if that's okay. Um, I did like them as a couple, and I liked that um, he wasn't a so-called good boy, because Matron obviously stuttered over that a little bit. <laughs> um, generally, she said he was a good boy. Um, and I liked that he wanted to... I, I just love all the feel-good things and everything, so I really liked him as a character. But I also thought, apart from the, the point that he in a way forced his wife to take a child at the end of the thing um it was done re in a really nice way and um and he was really helping her because she obviously did need help because she couldn't get over the, her grief of losing the child so i just thought they were really quite uh endearing couple mm -hmm. that's that's the point i struggle with i'm like because part of me doesn't like i th i thought he could have respected her a little bit more 
and that he almost kind of tricks her into sort of going at the orphanage and he seems quite impatient with her grief. So it's that kind of balance of like, when do you push to help the person or when are you just being ignorant to their grief and their problems and things like that? So I couldn't, I'm still, my mind is not quite made up on Jim yet, but overall I think he was, he was not bad. <laughs> it, do, it does say, there's a line in here that says that all he hoped was, that seeing a crowd of children enjoying themselves might lighten the sadness in her eyes. So, I mean, that does g kind of hint at the fact that he wasn't going to force the fact that they were going yeah. to adopt a child. He really did just want her to open her heart to it again. But then it had only been a year since they'd lost their son. Yeah. But then yeah. things were done differently back then. They moved a lot faster, yes. didn't they? The, re the reason I really, really liked the story is just because I thought it was perhaps a theme that you didn't see very often or maybe something that wasn't necessarily spoken about a lot. I think, you know, even now sometimes parents and women are, are expected to just get on with it and not really speak about it. It's kind of a hush-hush thing. So I quite liked that it was bringing this kind of out in the open. It's quite a brave thing to write a story about. Yeah. Because that is a huge thing for any parent. And, you know, this mother is obviously hugely still in grief mm -hmm. and I'm not sure how much the story actually dealt with that and maybe it wasn't done at the time because it was wartime it was stiff upper lip mm -hmm. it was you know you just keep calm and carry on but it doesn't strike the right emotional note I don't think in that it is it's a people's friend short story you can't go that deep yeah even though I wasn't particularly fond of the story, I did feel sorry for the mother character in it. Yeah, definitely. There was one line, actually. It was when he's asking her to come into the orphanage, and she's like, no, I'll stay here, I'm rather tired. Then seeing the look of disappointment in his eyes, she quickly added, no, I'll come. Mm -hmm. And it was just that. It's like, he never, he never outright said anything to make her feel bad or was, you know, particularly mean to her or anything, but... She just obviously just felt this like expectation of, of wanting to please him and things. I disagree. Oh. Oh. I think <laughs> that she wanted to go in, but she just said no to protect herself at first. And then she, because who wouldn't want to go and see where their partner had grown up and, and learn about, because he obviously had quite a good experience there. It wasn't obviously a horrible yeah. experience for him. So she didn't hum and haw about it. She literally just changed her mind and realized, look, I'm just going to do it. Maybe she even wanted his trick to work out. That's, I, I really, I actually really do like your point of actually she's just more challenging herself and she's got this immediate reaction, of, you know, a sort of self-defensive action yes. of just rebuffing these things and it's just that kind of pushing past it. Going back bit. to, sorry, no, going fine. back to Marianne's comment about um, not really dealing with the grief side of things, I wish I'd done a bit of research. What was the child mortality rate back in 1940? Was it something that was quite common? Or was it something that happened, obviously, much more often than today? So it might just have been expected to kind of just brush it under the rug and move on. Something I don't know. I mean, they didn't have diphtheria inoculations back then, did didn't they? Didn't even have the NHS back then. No. So probably quite... It, so it certainly something you would know many people have probably been through the same thing. You'd think so, yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird. It's one of these things I hadn't really thought about from that point of view. I guess I, I saw the date on this and my mind went straight to 
this is a, a product of the war. This mm-hmm. is a kid who's lost his parents in, but it's never brought in. I just, I just realised it's nowhere anywhere in this story is no. the war mentioned or even alluded to. I was going to say that. This is what made me think it was maybe written before the war I and taken out of stock. Yeah. Because there's absolutely no indication at all that there's a war on. Look at the cream buns. I know, the rationing. I mean, yeah. There's none, unless, unless Jim has some very dodgy... <laughs> yeah, Jim gets the cream buns on the black market. <laughs> this poor child was fit to burst. I mean, yeah. I don't know. That doesn't sound like good parenting to me. Uh, I mean, you seem to be a cop, I suppose, but, you know, filling a, an, an ill child feels... Sticky buns and more tea than he can actually process. I mean, it's a shame. It's a shame that Maureen hadn't actually read that week's People's Friend because, believe it or not, there was an article about uh, catering for an invalid—a whole page of invalid recipes, which uh, I know you're dying to hear. I, was, I thought you were about to make something up. Then <laughs> it was like, oh, she should have read People's make Friend. This up, but Becky. this is actually—you've got the scam. Standing, oh yeah, catering for an invalid. So. I'll give you some of the highlights. There's inexpensive beef tea, beef tea custard, oh. invalid soup. That sounds so cannibalistic. <laughs> Nourishing beef jelly. Oh no. Brand jelly. My favourite, one of my favourites, invalid's chop. How is that different from any other chop? It's for invalids, Marion. <laughs> poor sickly so this invalids. So this isn't a case of, of like technique, it's just a case of branding. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's, it's partly. I mean, there's chicken mould. What? what? <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. Is there pictures? Uh, no, no. There's sort of I'm like, glad. Please, no, you, yeah. you should be it's glad. It's like a chicken, morbid curiosity. <laughs> so, I mean, if only... Oh, no, my favourite, sorry. I've, I've missed out my very, very favourite. Toast water. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> this is recommended as a cooling drink. What's the recipe? Just dip toast one, in your water? Use one piece of bread for a pint of water. <laughs> toast the bread until thoroughly browned and quite hard all the way through, being careful, however, not to burn it. Lay it in the bottom of a basin, pour over the boiling water and allowed to stand until cold. Strain before using. (laughs) Oh my goodness. That's nearly as good as Mrs. Beaton's toast sandwich. I feel like I've just entered a fever dream. It's amazing. That's fantastic. If only they'd done that for little Jeremy, he'd have been up and about no time at all. No need to take him home, no need for holidays. Everyone, oh no, hang on, that's not the way that would have worked out. Oh well. (laughs) (laughs) What a shame. I was about to say, I was like, how can I possibly get back to the story from that? But you did do it, thank you. Did anyone have an idea of Jeremy's age? I mean, there's the illustration. Because I kind of got the feeling that he was the same age as their dead son, which I thought was a bit... I think perhaps a bit older. I think he, he looks older. He, talk, and he, he talks, talks well. quite well, doesn't yeah. he? So, yeah, I think maybe maybe the age their son would have been mm-hmm. had he... So four, maybe, yeah. So yeah, four. four or five. Um. Because that's not a toddler in that illustration. No, no. And I am, I am glad it doesn't do the kind of like, oh, we just replaced him. Yeah, <laughs> so like he was a kitten. Yeah, we just got, and it, we we got another child, and it solved everything, and and we never think about our first one again. I think it does handle that very well in that it's it, she's not, it she hesitates. It's not like an immediate kind of thing. And going back 
to an earlier point, I just wanted to say that I, I really quite liked the points that were made about rationing and that how this doesn't deal with the war time at all. And like you said, Marion, it might have come out of stock or something. Because that is a good point. Usually you at least get like a reference to them being a soldier or on leave, even if it's nothing to do with the war at all. And, and like you said, the, the how much they were using sweet treats. And even the fact they're very celebratory at the seaside, like a very normal day at the seaside is maybe... To be, for, to be fair, though, this was January 1940, and um, I'm not sure what the lead time would be, but when did the war start? September 30th. September. So would Russian and even come in been gathering before that. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So had it. Yeah, I mean, the war is all the way through the magazine. I mean, it's, it, it's weird when, you, when I went back to reread this, the fact that it's not mentioned or even alluded to is, is quite weird. Because Perhaps it's it, everywhere. It's mm-hmm. in every aspect of... The magazine, it's even got, I mean, it's an amazing bit called What the Children Need in Wartime. It's a, it's an advert for Scots and Motion, but it's in, the, it's in the adverts, it's in the features. There's an entire feature on a general, which you start to get in people's friends around mm-hmm. the wartime. They start to profile soldiers, which is quite weird. It just seems out of place with people's friend. Um, and even in Cousin Tom's Corner, there's mm-hmm. a story about evacuees yeah. with the unfortunately titled the evacuated rabbit, which sounds just <laughs> I awful. I remember that. <laughs> the evacuated rabbit. Why? Why would the rabbit need to be evacuated? They live oh. in self, you know, self-made, ready-made bomb shelters. Why is this rabbit? I don't know. Anyway, but, do you think there's yeah. an element of though that they they maybe want to include stories that are a slight break from Escapism. the constant yeah. war? Because I know that's mm-hmm. something we do now. Is that we're very much escape from all the kind of bad stuff that's happening around the world and we don't want to touch on it too much because you get enough of it everywhere else so I know it was a bit different back then because this this would have been they wouldn't have had such constant news cycle like we do now so they would be getting some other information from the magazine and things like that but I still think you would need they would so, be conscious that they would need a bit of a break from so they're going to lighten the mood with some infant mortality and orphans <laughs> oh, <God. That's, laughs> good wow. point yeah. actually it's, I think it's, 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 it's a warming story but yeah because yeah. as Barry says it does like the it really is screaming the fact that there's no mention of war in it mm-hmm. and then um, as he said it was even mentioned in the children's corner during the war which I remember from going through the archives before as well um, so I think it possibly did either they were struggling for stock or they did want just some escapism just to kind of lighten the mood we've done some more um, background googling and discovered that rationing would have come in January 1940 so when this was published so it very much with the lead times and everything would have been a case that when this story was commissioned or put in that you know rationing wasn't as much of a thing and that's why you have all the the sweet treats and stuff and I can just imagine because it still happens today where you put something in, in the magazine and then some something in the world massive happens and you're like oh no like we have a, we have this thing that is now kind of um outdated or a bit insensitive so maybe they were like oh no we filled, we've filled this full of happy children and sweets and now the world's gone to pot <laughs> All those travel features back in March 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine. um, Well, I was was going to say, um, I actually tried to find find out who Una Murray was. And I had absolutely no success. (laughs) I was going to ask you, was she a regular writer? Because I I looked for her online and couldn't couldn't find her. couldn't see anything else about her. Um, There are so many Una Murrays. And I went through various of the the sites that... Uh, that we, we use for research and there was just too many to count 
But I did find an account of one, this is from 1945, a Miss Una Murray, who was the wartime meals advisor for the Ministry of Food. So I just like to think <laughs> that was her. I mean, I have nothing to base that on other than the fact that she's like stuffing children. This is Barry's world and we're all just living in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What Barry I have no idea who goes. she is, I'm afraid. Um, no, I don't, I don't see her anywhere else. Um, not a regular that I'm aware that's of. That's a shame. That's, that's popping up quite a lot in, in this series is just these sort of one-off. But she wasn't, I don't think, I mean, she wasn't without skill as a writer. I can see um, some very good writing in this. In fact, there's a really nice bit kind of towards the end. Well, no, not kind of in the middle, really where uh, they're doing the tour of the orphanage and uh, he's given us a guided tour. Here's where I was, here's where I slept and here's where I, here's where I stood in the corner in disgrace <laughs> when, uh, when, when I once took Matron's clock to pieces. I thought, well, that's quite interesting because not only they're just alluding to the fact that he goes on to be an engineer or you know, some skill, but literally time standing still for this guy in that moment. Oh, thought, oh that's quite nice. That's a nice touch. Is plaster work still there as well? Is what do you make work? of that? <laughs> I think he's a jack of all trades. <laughs> a very handy man. A gym of all trades. <laughs> you don't think they were getting the orphans to reach you, the orphanage? <laughs> I, I think they probably were. They had to earn their keep. They had to earn their cream buns, Mario. I didn't think of that. Oh, that's such a nice point, though. Um, yeah, I quite like I said, the writing's very believable. I do like the the dialogue and things in it. So since we don't have our usual uh, sort of fiction rep on the team, we usually ask how this compares to what we published today, what changes would we make? So what do we think about how this compares to what we have in the magazine today? Jackie, what do you think? Well, I think the, the basic storyline is very similar to what we'd have today, although we would, obviously, as I said earlier, we'd have to update it language-wise. Um, but I, I mean, I could see this story in The People's Friend written by a different author and yeah, set in the nineteen forties, but yeah, I think we have we have some great authors who can who are really good at period stories and good at specifically good at at wartime stories. So I think we would possibly we would tone down some of it, make it a bit more sympathetic, and we would not ignore the women's grief. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably the main thing that would be different, um, which was Marion's point earlier about the fact that it wasn't really addressed, um, but. I think it has all the same hopeful points as one of our stories would have today. Do you agree? I think that's a nice summing up. Yeah. <laughs> from from recollection, do you know if we've, have we had any stories of similar of sort of child loss or? Yes. Although, in the friend way, we try not to focus on bad things. Yeah. And um, we try not to focus on the negative. So although we don't we don't ignore things now, we like to keep things um, authentic and realistic. But we do try like we want all our stories to have a happy ending yeah. in the way that this was so um it's a similar sort of light light touch or it's there just kind of on the periphery but it's not the mm -hmm. entire focus we'll move on to our rating um which we're doing out of five stars um i know i've changed it from 10 even though i i did allow some point fives to get through which essentially just makes it 10 but we'll try to stick to five stars <laughs> <laughs> in a long roundabout way um so barry i'll start with you five star rating i'll see four i think it's i like what it does in a very short space of time fair i, I actually that was a point I, I would have liked it to be longer i think i think it would have benefited from a bit more room um i'm going to give it um if it's a four it's a low four i think 
I'm going to go three, actually. Jackie, what about you? I disagree with you again. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it... I think its length was just right. I like the simplicity of it, that it, it wasn't any longer than that. Um, and I would give it a four. I think the people of the time would have really enjoyed that story. And um, despite it, the fact that it is obviously dated, I still think it's good today. Mm-hmm. Marion? Um. <laughs> well, you know it wasn't for me. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not going to be a five. But it's not the worst story I've ever read. No. So it's going to be three. Yeah. I, I I feel bad about my three. I'm like, oh, maybe it's a high three. But yeah, we'll stick to three. So has it earned cream buns or beef tea? <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not water toast. Or toast water. Toast, toast water. Toast water. <laughs> yeah. It was a big difference between those two things. Right, well, on that note, I'm going to say thank you to Kirsty for reading that story for us and to Jackie, Marion and Barry for joining us for the discussion and always to you for listening. All that's left for me to say is until this wee group of friends gets together again for another story from the friend to you, cheerio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Follow on your podcast app today so you don't miss out on our next story and check our previous episodes for more from the Friend Archives. We would be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get the People's Friend magazine delivered, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you have an exclusive offer to subscribe to get your first 13 issues for just £6. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk, subscribe to our newsletter, or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Here's to back. There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend. That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure. The friend to friends in trouble recommend. They won't be happy till they get the friend.